0: Your Bibles this morning, the Book of Romans, chapter six. A number of years ago, preached through the Book of Romans. Um, it's one of my favorite series that I preach through. I love the Book of Romans, um, and so it'll be fun for me um, to return there this morning and a few times over the next few weeks or so. Um, make sure my prezi's working. Um, The next eight weeks, we will be in a different kind of series as we are um, really looking at union with Christ or what it means to be in Christ. Uh, This is part of my... There it is. Look at there. It's beautiful. Um, I didn't do that graphic. I get it off the website. But um, as I'm working through my doctoral project, and it actually finds us... Uh, perfectly timed in the book of Nehemiah with thinking about community, um, community restoration, community redemption, community rescue. Uh, because this is this series, these eight weeks is going to be all about uh, the weighty doctrine of what it means union with Christ means and then how that then relates to how we love and serve one another. Um, it's one of those that you know union with Christ, I wanted to ask on the survey that I gave you, the pretest, survey that I gave you a few weeks ago, I wanted to ask, um, could you define union with Christ? And um, my professors would not let me ask that question. That's a qualitative question instead of a quantitative one. As you can tell, it's, it's mind-numbing already. Um, and they wouldn't let me ask that question. And here's what's fascinating about that, is I'm pretty confident I could not have defined it to you a year ago. And I say that to you saying, if I couldn't define it to you a year ago, my gut is, none of us could have defined it roughly a year ago, because most of you have sat under my preaching, so if I haven't clearly walked through what that is, that's on me. It's not the kind of subject that um, most Christians spend lots of time reading about or thinking about, yet it is Paul's key way that he communicates the reality of what it means to be a Christian. More than anything else... He references being in Christ. Something like 150 times Paul says we are in Christ. It's union with Christ. And this doctrine, as a doctrine, fell out of vogue being preached about or talked about a couple hundred years ago. And so here it is that Paul says it's central to the way I think and the way I want everyone to think about what it means to be a Christian. Um, But in Christendom, in church life, in theological life, it kind of fell out of vogue to write a lot about because, frankly, Union with Christ, when you read that, if you were scanning books at a bookstore, you're not like, oh, let me pick up that tome and pick that one off the shelf and read it. The first two books I had to read, even in in working towards this series, combined are about that thick. And there were many bleary moments of looking through watery eyes. Well, you know me well enough to know it would never be my desire. I think it's a crime. It's a sin to bore people with the word of God. It's a fascinating doctrine. It's a deep doctrine. And part of what I want to do this morning is help to set the stage to define it for us, but also to help you understand its importance. This is not some some, uh, airy kind of thought exercise. This is not ivory tower kind of thinking. This is your daily life. This is my daily life. This impacts everything you do. Everything I do, it, it impacts how you think about who you are and how you function in this world. It goes to the very core of our identity. And so we'll start this morning with Romans 6, 1 through 5. It'll take us a few minutes to fully get to that text, just to prepare you for the next eight weeks. I think even next Sunday, I'm probably going to teach from down on the floor. There will even be a little bit of interaction. It will be highly unusual the next eight weeks that way. It'll be very different. From what you're used to, here's what will be the same. I guarantee you, you're going to get fed every week from God's word and called to live fresh in Him, and and that's my prayer for you every week. So that won't change. So presentation style may change. I mean, actually, Steve interaction, like, I, I it it is part of these eight weeks, and I think it'll be more effective that way. So Romans chapter six, and let's get into it this morning. Paul famously says. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. How do you want to be remembered? How do you want people to think about you when you're gone? How do you want people to think about you even right now? Uh, A caregiver? A mom or a dad? A leader? A business person? Successful. Healthy. That person is the picture of health. A husband or a wife? A single Free, I want people to think of me as free, independent, self-reliant, an American. I'm just curious, I, I wonder how you would think about yourself and how you'd want others to think about you. Resilient, the kind of person who bounces back. Righteous, holy. We can think of all kinds of ways. Um, growing up, big one in my family is a Ford guy or a Chevy guy, Right? Uh, Do you like to wear a bow tie, or were you found on the road dead? F-O-R-D. All It was funny. My dad worked for GM, and he loved Corvettes, but we were a total Ford family. It was weird. How do you want to think about who you are? When I was in middle school, were you a jock, a prep? Were you a grit? Grit reference to grit under your fingernails. We came from blue collar, and so we wore jean jackets, we put heavy metal bands all over them, and we fought at the drop of a hat just to prove how tough we were. How do you want to think about yourself? How do you think about yourself? What would be your identity? Why is Herod willing to kill hundreds, some say thousands of infants? Why did he order the slaughter of the innocents? Because he's king. I'm king, not some kid in Bethlehem. I'm going to prove it to you that I'm king. I have this kind of power. Why are the priests, the Sanhedrin, the scribes, the Pharisees, the zealots, the sellouts to Rome, all intense political rivals, all enemies of one another, why are they all willing to come together for one common enemy, Jesus, and kill him? Because he threatened their very identity. He was a threat to their identity of power. He was a threat to their identity of being in charge. He was a threat to their identity of ruling over everyone. Why is Judas willing to betray Jesus for silver? Because it furthered his identity as a wealthy man. The amount he'd been stealing from the purse that we find out later was never enough. What about us? What about our culture? Why are women without children treated as second-class citizens so often? Well, then others who have children make life all about their status as a mom because their identity is either they have or they have not had the privilege of bringing life into the world. Why do we resent serving others in love and kindness while we expect to be served with love and kindness? Because however it is we think about ourselves, we believe we deserve to be the one who is served by everyone else. Why do people give themselves to their careers instead of loving and serving other people? Because their identity is in respect, achievable goals, and a way to measure that they have accomplished something. We are in an identity crisis. The truth is this, we act based on how we think about who we are. How we think about ourselves drives the things that we do. Paul knows that. And Paul understands if there's going to be any hope of lasting change in our lives, we have to be transformed in how we think about who we are as people. This is where true change begins. Being justified in Christ through his grace faith alone, and then living out that reality for the rest of our lives. Jesus actually describes it this way in Luke chapter 9. He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. That is literally death to who you are. Take up his cross daily and follow me. That tells us that we have to die to who we are to be alive in him and that it's a daily kind of way of thinking. It's not just one and done. It's every day we have to consider this reality. Why? Jesus says in Luke 9:24, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? There is no greater identity question than if you are in Christ or not. This is all that matters. This is the very crux of life itself and of humanity. And so then I think it's right then to, to ask right off the bat, does it really matter? I mean, Steve, at the end of the day, does it really matter that every day I consider the reality that I am in Christ, I'm united with Christ? Should this really be a driving focus of my life? Is it so important to give eight weeks to? Is it so critically important that hundreds and thousands of pages are written? And I could argue, yeah, it matters just because Paul wrote most about it, which is to say the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to think this way. But let's unpack it maybe a little bit more. How else can we really prove that it matters? Well, I think, first of all, because definitions matter. Definitions matter. Um, Rightly defining terms is the only way to have a meaningful conversation about a subject. George Bernard Shaw famously said this, Britain and America are two nations divided by a common language. Uh, What are some examples of that? Well, if you go outside in Britain and you say, yeah, I just put my pants on and went outside, that would be incredibly embarrassing because pants in Britain is just your underwear you better put on a pair of trousers, as well. If you're in Britain and and you say that you needed to have some braces, um, we think metal in your mouth. They actually think suspenders. A trolley here is public transportation, while in Britain, it's a grocery cart or a buggy, depending on where you live at in the United States. In other words, definitions matter in our communication. If we don't rightly define something, we're not even sure we're talking about the same thing at all. One of the more serious obstacles in Christian culture and in theology is the importance of theological words and rightly defining them. What do we mean by words like sanctification, regeneration, conversion, community, or the gospel? What do we really mean by union with Christ? Words are important, and a common meaning is critical for us to have any kind of discourse or conversation at all. The term union with Christ is one of those terms that needs specific defining, It needs this so that we can understand, but also for its power. It's Paul's most foundational way, as I've said. He says it over and over again with these words in the Bible, in Christ. The Greek is just as simple, in Christo. Are you in Christ or not? What does that mean that I'm in Christ? How do I understand that? Union with Christ is at the very core of the identity of the believer. Understanding that truth gives you a tremendous defense against a warped view of self. You know, I'm on a mission of self-discovery anyway. I want to find out more about how I think and how I operate. Um, At 48, I, I, I do all kinds of things in life. I function all kinds of ways, but I really want to know why do I do the things that I do and why do I think the way I think and how do I function. One of the things I've realized is I hate giving people bad news. I hate it. I don't think anybody likes it. Um, and, and unfortunately, one of the things I've discovered is 19 years into being a pastor, you spend a lot of your time giving people bad news. And I've come to discover this about myself. I hate giving people bad news, not because just because of the response, although I empathize with them, I sorrow with them, but I feel like the cause of the bad thing I have to say. I mean, am I the cause? Dr. Libby, when he looked at my wife and I sitting in his Office a couple years ago, and he said, "You have cancer. You have stage three colon cancer, and this is incredibly serious." And here's what the treatment plan is. The, the ironic thing is that was that's terrible news, like like that's horrible news to get. There wasn't any part of my wife and I that blamed Dr. Libby or thought that he was the cause of that news. One of the things I've realized about myself is oftentimes, like I live like I'm the cause of the bad news I have to give. And here's what's interesting, I've discovered about myself, I don't do that with good news. When I give good news, I don't feel like I'm the cause of it. And so you know what I'm doing then? I'm getting all the negative and none of the good. That's healthy. (laughs) No, it's not. Why is that? Because there's there's a significant part of Steve John's that I have a very warped view of who I am. And my warped view of who I am, very often is I can't do anything really good or right. All that I do is bad. All the time. Now, you don't have to raise your hands, but I'm curious if any of the rest of you tend to feel that way. That's a warped view of self. Do you think that's damaging to a person? Do you think that hinders the way you do life? Guess what part of the solution for that is? A right understanding of who you are. Right identity. And there's nothing more important to your identity than understanding you are in Christ or not. Because once you're in Christ, it's not about your goodness or your badness. It's about who Christ is. Union with Christ is at the very core of the identity of the believer. Understanding our union with Christ frames a tremendous defense against these kinds of warped sense of self. So it matters for us to understand this because definitions matter, but it also matters because comparisons matter. If we want to understand an idea, It's very common for us to use comparisons to wrap our minds around that idea. Let me just give you biblical ones. And they kind of frame these boundaries of understanding. The Bible, for example, it will say, do you have a heart of flesh or is the heart of stone? And he even prophetically promised that there would come a day he would take out a heart of stone and put it a heart of flesh. Well, there's so much beauty in that imagery, right? Stone is death. It's lifeless. Even when God wants to communicate how lifeless stones are, he says, if you don't praise me, I'll even make the rocks cry out right i can make think about the beauty of that i can make that which was dead live so that it praises me it's a glorious picture of salvation a heart of stone or heart of flesh we could even ask and interact with other people when we think about salvation and are you a christian or not do you have a heart of stone or do you have a heart of flesh this comparison matters or are you dead or alive ephesians chapter 2 but god being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even while we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Lazarus is a physical picture of the spiritual reality of every believer. You were dead in the tomb, and he said, come out. Boy, what an amazing moment. Can you imagine that? Totally dead, cold. You think nothing. You hear nothing. You're in nothing but utter darkness and blankness. And then suddenly your eyes pop open to hear your name being yelled out. It's an amazing moment. Are you dead? or Are you alive? Or another one, old thinking or new thinking. When he presses forward, he says in Ephesians 4.17, Now this I say and testify in the Lord, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. What does he mean? That's actions, right? Don't do what Gentiles do. But listen to where he ties it in, Paul and Ephesians, in the futility of their minds. There's a transformation of the way we think. And what he's telling us there in Ephesians is it's progressive and it keeps going throughout your life. You will never this side of glory... Think all the right ways you're supposed to think. Uh, We've got this one preacher called it stinking thinking. And there's this transformation that's supposed to be happening. And so he gives us these boundaries. Each one of these teaches us an old versus a new state, but also an old way of living versus a new way of living. Where does union with Christ fit into this way of understanding? Where does being in Christ in union with Christ fit? What are the comparisons there, and how can we understand it? We have to understand that Paul is going to use a significant contrast, and let me give it to you, the contrast of being in Christ is being in Adam. And so he is actually asking, and what Romans 6, 1 through 5 is driving at, as he's writing to people that claim Christ, that are believers in the church in Rome, is he's saying, you used to be in Adam now you're in Christ, and if we were going to boil it down to modern-day Steve kind of language, it's this. You used to be an Adam. Now you're in Christ. Live like it. Let the reality of your identity in Jesus come out of you. There's all kinds of deep truth wrapped up into that. And so let's maybe unpack a little bit of that then together. What does it mean to be an Adam? Well, if you were to just go back one page in Romans 5, you can see this amazing picture of it, an amazing description of what it's like when people are in Adam. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Brief pause. What he's saying is all of sin existed long before there was the Mosaic law, long before there was Abraham. Abraham. So where are we going back to? Well, who's before Moses? Who's before, it? Where, how far can we go back? We're going all the way back to Adam here. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. In other words, saying you may not have sinned exactly like Adam, yet Adam's sin was in you. What does it mean to be in Adam. Paul is alluding to this reality in Romans 5. He says it this clearly in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. This ad, in Adam state summarizes all that is entailed in the lost man's condition. Everything about you or I that is about lost is summarized with this phrase in Adam. You can see it back in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for example. A, faith, a verse that many of us have memorized over the years. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. To be an Adam means that you are less than necessary to meet God's glory. You are below the standard because you are a sin, sinner. To be an Adam is in your sinful state. It could stand with all other kinds of statements about what it means to be lost. We could use any of these questions Are you converted? Are you lost? Are you in sin? Are you alive spiritually? Are you regenerated? Or we could look at someone and say are you in Adam? Let me define it maybe even a little bit further. We can think of sin in the life of a person in three ways. There's the presence of sin there's the power of sin and there's the punishment of sin. We live in the presence of sin all the time because sin is in us. You didn't Become a sinner when you sinned. You were a sinner, so you sinned. What was already in you came out of you. Every one of us in this room. Have you ever been curious why did there need to be a virgin birth? Because the sin of the father was not passed down to that son. It's a picture. There's some mystical spiritual reality involved here. The fact is Jesus is not like any of the rest of us that way. But for everyone else, from Romans 3.23, from Romans 5, from 1 Corinthians 15, every one of us in this room is born a sinner. Sin comes out of us because that's what's in us. It's what we call our sin nature. You were born a liar. You were born a deceiver. You were born embittered. You were born prone to anger. You were born prone to loss. All of this is in you. Now, you may not have given full vent to whatever sin is in you, you may have not done all the things you could have done. Nevertheless, you are a sinner. Every one of us on the planet is an atom. It's every lost person's condition. We live surrounded by sin all the time. Do you ever get weary by living in a sewer of sin? It's everywhere. You can get up you can have your morning devotions, you can sit with your cup of coffee or tea or your Bible, sit on your back deck, listen to the birds chirping, read about Jesus' love, be immensely moved, have a sweet prayer time, go out get in your car and have your crazy neighbor mow down your flowers. And you're righteously angry, but then you and I both know you get sinfully angry. Or go get on the highway and somebody cuts you off and you feel anger. Or you remember a past hurt and you remember it in a vengeful way. Well, you wish this would happen to them. And bitterness starts coming out of you. Or lack of forbearance with other people that you live with or you spend time with. Or lust. You see some billboard, have some thought. Consumes you. Laziness. You know there's things you should be doing, but you don't do them irresponsibility, manipulation, and control. It comes out of you. And so suddenly you're in this moment, you're like, well, I've had my time with the Lord, and I'm saved, and yet I still feel like I swim in the cesspool of sin. It's all around me all the time. We live in the presence of sin. We feel its power. We still have our flesh in us, and We feel these compulsions, these desires. We long for heaven where these desires will be gone. We long where there will be total freedom, but we feel like we still are enslaved by sin. And we feel like we're still under the punishment of sin. So when you look at Romans 5 and you have trials that come into your life, Paul has to preach to the believers that when you suffer, it's not his wrath. Because it feels like it, doesn't it? What's one of the first thoughts when you get that medical diagnosis or that bad news or that financial downturn? What's one of your very first thoughts? Maybe not the first thing, but it's on the top five, and it's this. What did I do for this? Like, this is wrath. To be an Adam, though, to be lost, means you are consumed with the presence of sin because it is sin in you all the time coming out of you. You are under the punishment of sin. One day you will pay eternal damnation for your sin. The wages of sin is death, and you are under its power. You are completely enslaved to it. To be in Adam is to describe the completeness, the fullness of the sinful condition of all of humanity. And that is the contrast before he gets to what it means then to be in Christ. We have this stunning contrast then. The in Christ state summarizes then the deliverance of the believer in their minds, their desires, their actions, and their destinations. It is all-inclusive. You ever have one of those things? Here's an all-inclusive resort. includes everything. And you're always like, yeah, but does it really? And you and I both know, no, it doesn't. But to be in Christ... Paul uses this language because he can't think of any better word. If you're in Adam and it's the perfect picture of the lost man's condition and state, then there's no better picture than what it means to be saved than to say you are in Christ. With all that that means and all that that entails. Your desires, the things you long for, are radically changed when you're in Christ. The things I used to do, there used to be a children's church song. The things I used to do, I don't do them anymore. The things I used to think, I don't think them anymore. The things I used to say, I don't say them anymore. To be in Christ changes your desires, your actions, and your destination. It's a confirmed state of being, so that either you are in Adam or you are in Christ, even here this morning. However, it's also reflected in a progressive way. While, while we are made new in Christ, yet we are still living here on this world, still surrounded by other people's sin, still wrestling with their own sin because of our flesh. What am I supposed to do with that? And so Romans 6 through 8 is a complete picture. It is, it is like reading just a theological treatise on what it means to live in Christ on this earth. Because we feel this internal conflict, every one of us in this room. And so it leads us again to ask, does it really matter? Well, let me walk you then through Romans 6. Who you are matters, Romans 6, 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Now, he uses this phrase, are we, are those that are among us. So just back up one verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 21. Let's just get the run end why Paul is asking these questions. These are rhetorical questions. In other words, that means the answer should be obvious. Romans 5.20, so that that as sin reigned in death, to be an Adam, to be dead, to be spiritually dead, sin was your ruler and my ruler, so as sin is the ruler of everyone who's lost, so as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You don't get heaven by living righteously, but if you're saved, you'll start living righteously. That's what he's saying. And it will culminate in the obvious unveiling of who you are. Uh, elsewhere, Paul says this, you are not who you actually appear to be. But when Jesus returns, that's when we'll all see you for who you really are. That's awesome. And so then his response to that is, what do we say to that then? What do we, how do we respond to that reality, this righteousness through life in Jesus? What do I, how do I respond to that? Am I supposed to continue in sin that grace might bound? Now, those questions, that seems almost crazy unless you understand grace. And what Paul has said is you are dead. You are Lazarus in the tomb, and Jesus says, come out. That's great. You didn't earn it. What exactly did Lazarus do to get up? I mean, you ever seen a dead person just climb out? Of it? Look, this isn't... Um, Uh, Romero's Night of the Living Dead, right? This isn't zombies. Uh, Some of you look like a zombie this morning. Higher power, higher octane coffee available in the lobby. Um, But that's not what you are, right? When Jesus makes you alive, you are alive. That's grace. It's not like Jesus looked down and he saw you or me and he said, you know who we really need on our team? This is like draft, this is fantasy God-Satan draft. It's not like the Trinity got together and said, you know who's an awesome player, who would be just a fantastic believer? Okay, Satan's going to take his next pick. I'll take our next pick. Steve. That's not the way this ball bounced, folks. It's not that he looked upon me and like, you know, he is so smart and talented and gifted. I am a broken mess. I'm 48 and still wrestle with giving bad news or good news. like that. Like, really? I mean, grow up, Steve. You know, I, 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 I'm a, I, I'm a wreck. It, it's grace. It, it's not earned. It's not deserved. It's grace. And so Paul recognizes that when you really live in the fullness of that grace, that it wasn't based upon me, but upon Christ. When it wasn't based on my loveliness, my goodness, my talents, my abilities. Oh, I need Steve's abilities. I need his smarts. I'm consistently reminded when he wanted to preach a really powerful sermon at one point in the Old Testament, he used a mule. I got lots more in common with a mule than any famous order. That's grace then. That's grace. Well, then he recognizes when you really live in that grace, sometimes there will be believers who think, well, then I can do whatever I want to do. There would be some people who say, well, if it's that much grace, I mean, is this grace going to run out all of a sudden? No. Is he going to suddenly take back my salvation? No. So does it really matter if I live? Still enslaved by sin? And what Paul is saying is no, and in Romans 6 1, who you are matters. Prisoners may be free, but unless they're freed and they're from their institutionalized mindset. They are never free. Stephen King, I'm not, I'm not a Stephen King fan. it has got a couple of good ones. Green Mile, Shawshank Redemption. Difficult content. Shawshank Redemption is a prison set somewhere in the 20s, 30s. You got two primary characters in the movie. um are include the movie. One of them is called Red, and one of them is Brooks. Both Brooks and Red spend 50-plus years in prison, and as a result of being in prison, they have what we call an institutionalized mindset. People with an institutionalized mindset have now lived a structured existence, not for a day, not for a week, not for even boot camp. But 50 years they've been told when to get up, when to go to bed, what to eat, when to eat, where to eat, where to go, what to do, constantly. If they want to do anything, they've got to ask the boss man, what should I do now? Hey, getting up to take my food tray back. Okay, you can take your food tray back. It's time to do this. Lights out. Here it is, 50 years of an institutionalized mindset that strips from them not just their physical freedom, but mental freedom. Comes a point in the story that Brooks is paroled. He's terrified of being paroled. He doesn't want to be paroled. He doesn't want to get out of prison to the extent that he actually attacks another prisoner hoping to catch another charge. Well, Brooks gets out, and he's free. He's free. He's free. He gets on a bus. He rides away to a town. All he's got to live is in a halfway house, get a job, start functioning, but you're free. Yes, you've been in prison for 50 years, but now you're free. And Brooks can't handle the freedom, and he can never shake the institutionalized mindset, and so he hangs himself. He's still a prisoner in his mind, even if he's not behind bars. On the other hand, Red finally gets out, and Red himself comes to the very same brink. But then there is a transformation moment in Red's mindset. And he becomes a totally different person. I'm going to leave the country. I'm going to be completely different than everything I've always been before and live free. The way we think about who we are Radically affects how we live life. Brooks was incapable, he was unable to shake the mindset that he is still in prison. And Red is able to change the way he thinks. How we think about who we are is what drives what we do. This is the point that Paul is making. It matters in life, and it matters specifically to Paul. Let me give you some other scriptural examples. David. David is convinced that he is an expert at beating away monsters who will harm sheep. He's convinced that he is. He's got skills and abilities and talents. He's got expertise in wielding a slingshot. And so when he sees yet another monster threatening innocent people, what does he say? God's power, I can do this. Because I have experience with this sling, and I have experience primarily with God empowering me to do this. I am a killer of monsters who threaten innocence. It's his identity. It's the way he thinks about who he is. Jesus appeals to that when he talks to Peter, Andrew, James, and John. How does Jesus make his appeal? How does he frame his question to these guys about now following him? He says, you are all fishermen. Come now and be... Fishers of men. He uses their identity. How they think about who they are. Oh. So I can transfer, there are something about this skill set that I have. Generationally passed down to me, most likely, in their culture, of being a fisher of men. A fisherman, now fisher of, oh. Oh. You've probably even heard sermons. I know, I've given illustrations about what that means to cast the net. Jesus tells other parables about casting the net, drawing in the fish. Like, they get it because it's how they think about who they are. It's the way we function. If you think of yourself as an academic or as a scholar, you will expect to do well in your classes. If you think about yourself as a mom, you will function as a mom. If you think about yourself as your dad... There are people that are terrible parents out there for all kinds of reasons, but a, a common one is they view their children as a prison for them. They don't think of themselves primarily as a mother or father. They think of themselves however they think of themselves, as a business person, a, an, an athlete, um, a, a scholar, whatever, and now this has been added to their life and that's going to stop their core identity. And it's even to the extent that we live in a culture that will then kill the child before they're born. Because they infringe upon who I am. With a stunning difference of someone who thinks of themselves, no, now I'm a mom or now I'm a dad. And it begins to frame who I am. How we think about who we are absolutely influences of what we do. This is the new reality that Paul is going after. How should you think about what you do? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might bound? For the person who is now in Christ, your identity is in him. How should you then now relate to sin? Our position in Christ is the very key that unlocks the door to a pure and holy life. Who we are matters in how we live. Understanding that is Paul's point. In Adam, sin rules. But in Christ, grace must now rule. Righteousness through grace is the life of those who are now in Christ. It's an identity issue. He presses on then, am I dead or alive? Verses 2 and 3, by no means, by no means should we continue in sin, by no means should we be enslaved to sin, by no means should we be ruled by sin, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? The difference between death and life couldn't be more obvious. I don't know if you've ever been around a dead body or around someone who is dying or has recently died. It's so abundantly obvious. There is this immediate transformation that's inescapable. The people around Jesus are concerned with the effects of death on Lazarus. So when Jesus says, uh, open the grave, what do they say? It's been a few days. Do you remember their response? But he stinks by now. Because with the death comes decay. Uh, becomes breakdown of the body and the fluids. There's this valley of dry bones... At one point where God sends a prophet to preach to them. And literally the bones from a vast battle are laying there. And they are bleached white by the sun. And they are dry as dry can be. Until this prophet begins to preach. And the spirit moves like the wind. And suddenly flesh and sinews start coming up on them. And organs. And they become alive. And the, the, the difference is stunning from a bleached bone to a living creature. The difference between Friday on the cross, and Sunday morning could not be clearer. There is a radical difference between death and life. How do we know that Jesus died? There's the testimony of the Roman guards, who are experts at killing and death. They know exactly when someone's dead. There's water and blood that pours out from the side of Jesus as they stick him with the spear, which means the decomposition had already begun, and the fluid had begun to gather into his lungs already. So when they punctured it, it poured out water and blood, breaking down of white blood cells, proving that the body had already started this, de- started this decomposition process. The preparation of the body that takes place is they would have covered him in, in spices and, and anointed the body and then wrapped it tightly in cloth. They would have known, Jesus, is, this is a dead body. As they lowered him off the cross and as they prepared the body, it would have been evident he is dead. Roman law had requirements to make sure that the criminal was dead before the body is released to the family members who are going to care for it. This is not some mind over matter kind of issue then. When Paul says that we have been put into the death of Jesus, this is not some Zen kind of thinking. I just need to think today that I am dead to sin. in zen buddhism they don't believe that suffering is real you have to outthink it I had some suffering in my life I put a nail through my hand have more kidney stones than i can count fractured my femur have had neck surgery that's physical and i'll just tell you this the physical doesn't compare to any of the emotional pain that i've really experienced I'll take a kidney stone all day over some of the stuff I've had to go through. And I know you would too. I know you would. I can't outthink pain. I've tried all kinds of ways. I've sat in the dentist chair getting a root canal, and the Novocaine was not taking. I tried to go to my happy place beach, waves, sun on my face. The whole time I'm gripping that dentist chair like I'm hanging on to my life coming out of a plane. Couldn't beat it. This is not just a mind over matter issue. This is the utter reality of life. All the positive thoughts in the world can't raise a dead person. Paul is teaching us that an actual transformation takes place in our salvation that moves us from death to life. Verse 3 is an illustration of that. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, (laughs) we're good Baptists, so we get this. Baptism is a transliteration of a Greek word, baptizo. Most of the Bible in the New Testament, Old Testament, um, translates words, doesn't transliterate them. What's the difference? Translate is you see this Greek word baptizo, you see its meaning, and you take whatever the meaning of the word is, and you put it in the English language. Instead, to transliterate is to simply take baptizo and make it Englishified or Anglified and make it baptized. You don't get the meaning of it. So what's the meaning of the Greek word? To be immersed into. That's literally what the word means. There's no argument that, about it. Like Language is language, right? It means to be put into, immersed Um. So when they put it here, baptize. you can read it if you want to translate it. You don't have to be a Greek scholar. You can translate it. Do you not know that all of us who have been put into Christ were put into his death? What he means is we died with him. That moment when Jesus died on the cross and he yelled out, it's finished. Those of us who are saved, we literally spiritually died with him in that moment. The reality of the death of Christ is applied to sin in the life of the believer. Just like Jesus died physically, we died with him spiritually to sin. Well, I think a great question that you're all asking now at this point in your minds is, what does that mean? Great. Paul knew we would think that, so he pressed on. Verses 4 and 5. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism, by being put into his death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. If we think of the effects of sin in the life of a person, we can boil it back down to those three key concepts I talked about earlier. The punishment for sin, the power of sin, and the presence of sin. We are delivered from the punishment of sin you can stay right here in Romans chapter 6 look over to verse 23 the wages of sin is death but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord for Christ the cross finishes and there's no more wrath there's no more pain there's no more suffering for Jesus with that moment when he dies it's all over I don't know how you're not Jesus begging for death after the scourging. After the betrayal, after being nailed to the cross. There are certain pains in our life where it feels like death would be deliverance. Jesus dies at a time of his own choosing. No man took his life, he gave it up. And when he dies, all the pain is done for him, all the suffering, the punishment. He is drinking the full cup of God's wrath on our behalf. So spiritually, to be in Christ means that we are forever freed from the wrath of God for our sins. Soak there for a minute. There's a man this past week who was freed after being 23 years in prison, wrongly convicted for a rape he didn't commit. It's an innocent man who has been institutionalized wrongly. We have the best justice system in the world, I'm convinced of that, and our justice system gets it wrong so many times. Guilty go free, and innocent go to prison. This is different. You see, you and I deserve his wrath. We earned it. And wrath was coming. Rightly deserved it. Jonathan Edwards describes it, that... It is only the mercy of God that like a spider hanging over flames held by the thinnest of threads, so God's mercy holds those who deserve his wrath. Or he describes it like an archer holding a bow with an arrow aimed at your very heart. With a trembling arm, God's mercy holds back the arrow of wrath that you deserve for your sin. To be in Christ means that Jesus consumes all of that wrath for us and so that as he died physically, As the suffering was over, the punishment was over, so that you and I that are in Christ have forever escaped his wrath, his deliverance from the punishment of sin. You can say it this way, Paul says it this way in Romans 8, 1 and 2. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life that has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. It's deliverance from the punishment of sin, but it's also deliverance from the power of sin. Further down in Romans 6, if you just go one verse further in Romans 6, 6, he says it this way. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we should no longer be enslaved to sin. Christ withstood temptation. He lived perfect and holy. He subjected himself to Satan's attempts to prove his perfection. Sin never had power over Jesus, and those of us that are in Christ, sin has no power over us. We no longer have to do the things we used to do. We are no, no longer ruled by our flesh. His whole point in Romans 7 will be a picture of what it looks like when a person is saved, but they still act like they're not. The things I would not, I still do, and the things I would do, I do not. So there's this law in me, and he's pointing us back to this truth. No, you are now in Christ. To be in Christ is to be delivered from the power of sin. And one day it will be deliverance from the very presence of sin. We will be in heaven, and there will be no more sin. What does it look like? I can't picture it better than I think how Paul Washer communicates it in a sermon that he preached a number of years ago about what the utter transformation looks like when a person gets saved. I'm going to skip past that one. Let me take it a little further. Let's imagine that I show up late, and I run up here on the and enter. all the are angry with me. Say, Paul, okay, if it's not going to come through there, I'll tell you. It would be like... If I were to show up today late to preach and as I'm here preaching, I show up and everybody's asking, why are you so late? And I said, well, I was on my way to church this morning. On my way to church this morning, there was a logging truck going down Kennerly Road. As the truck was coming towards me, I could see the driver and he was drifting and as he drifted, he drifted in my lane and he hit my van head on. It's a two-ton logging truck that's doing 50 miles an hour, and it hit my van head-on, so I'm sorry I'm late. And you would look at me, and you would say that I'm either a liar or a madman, right? And you'd be correct. Because there's no way a two-ton logging truck could hit me at 50 miles an hour and then not utterly, radically transform what I look like and how I function. Why do we live and act like Jesus is less powerful, less impactful than a two ton logging truck? And so it is that when people come to Christ, there is an utter, radical transformation that takes place. That is no more stunning than a dead person being made alive. What does it mean to be in Christ? It means that you've met the very God of the universe who's awakened your soul and has called you to himself and you see that you're a sinner and you've fallen on your face before him in repentance and in faith believing. Not I, but you, Jesus. You've been humbled to the very core of your being. You see who you are in Adam. You are in sin and yet he has now made you alive. To be in Christ is to be radically transformed. The phrase that Paul uses for that is to be in Christ, its union with Christ. Paul uses the phrase actually 164 times in his writings. It's the central way that he describes this new state of the believer. Our old self has been devastated by the logging truck of Christ's grace. Union with Christ is the doctrine that describes this new reality. This is how you would define union with Christ. It's the spiritual reality that a believer is in Christ. Christ is in them, and he is the controlling reality. Everything you do, everything you think, how you relate to other people around you is all about Jesus now in you, coming out of you. It's not about what you want. It's not about the weird sibling relationships you have. It's not about uh, how I function in my marriage, and this is what I am. It's not about this is my personality type baloney. It's now Jesus in you, coming out of you. I don't get to look at people and say, I didn't like everything about my upbringing. That's, how I act. That's why I act this way. Great, now it's Jesus in me that wants to come out of me. I don't get to make excuses any longer. I don't get to, get to try to blame other people because I realize all of that is to be an Adam. All of that is to be bound by my sin, but to be in Christ is to realize I'm now a new creation in him. And that becomes the controlling reality of everything I do and everything that I say. It looks like this. Um, there, there's so many ways that Paul describes. We'll unpack some of these over the next eight weeks. He says it's how Paul communicates about our relationship with God. It's how he communicates about our standing before God in Romans 8.1. It's how he communicates the way we are connected to other believers in Romans 12.5. Our new state of being in 2 Corinthians 5. How we receive God's promise. Have you ever felt like, now you can raise your hands on this one. Have you ever felt like you have a hard time understanding and applying God's promises to you as a believer? Me and three others. Great, that's fine. Some of us do. I don't even embarrass. I don't even care. Do you know why Paul says we have a struggle understanding God's promises for our life and really applying those to our life? We don't understand union with Christ. The fact that we're adopted as sons and daughters, my current spiritual condition, all of these just to name a few. What else does it look like? It looks like this poem by A.S. Wilson. Not merely in the words you say, not only in your deeds confessed, but in the most unconscious way is Christ expressed. For me, t'was not the truth you taught to you so clear to me still dim. But when you came to me, you brought a sense of him. From your eyes, he beckons me, and from your heart, his love is shed till I lose sight of you and see the Christ instead. It looks like Jesus in you coming out of you. When you have been united with Christ, you can't help but ooze kindness, forgiveness, truth. Love, forbearance, and submission to God. Theologian Wayne Grudem describes it this way. A union with Christ is a phrase used to summarize several different relationships between believers in Christ. Theologian John Stott describes a person who's in Christ this way. They dwell in him, and he dwells in them. He's the source of their life, and it shows up in everything that they do. used to be this commercial my brothers and I would always joke about. It was a breath mint commercial. It always started with this phrase. Do you have chronic halitosis? Halitosis is really bad breath. You ever talk to somebody and they open their mouth and you're like, I don't know if you're a believer or not, but the stench of death is on you. <laughs> I read a tweet this past week of worst first dates guy said he went on this blind date with a girl and she ordered a uh, pasta dish with extra garlic when it got there she asked for more garlic and she looked at the guy and she said that's just in case you thought you were kissing me tonight breath the very air we breathe should be christ coming out of us when we are in christ should be a sense of jesus not the stench of death. Union with Christ is the spiritual reality that a believer is in Christ, Christ is in them, and the controlling reality of every relationship of their life is to be Christ coming out of them. Who are you really? How do you think about yourself? Mom or dad, retiree, single, successful, married, ambitious, academic, child, teen, adult, educated, hardworking, Nothing matters more than if you're in Christ or not. Who you are matters. How you think about who you are matters just as much. What should you do with this then? For some of you, this is a reminder. For some of you, this is new information. Don't be ashamed if it's either one. First, first, your first response to this should be start thinking this way. Second, there's no better way to think about it than to talk about it with others. Maybe think of it this way. Um, my youngest son is a lacrosse player. And if you all asked what that meant, because it's not this super well-known sport, if you were to ask him, he would say a lot about conditioning, different lacrosse sticks, different nets, different positions, midi, attackmen, defensemen, checks, how you can stick check, poke check, Shove somebody out of bounds. Rules of the game. He'd tell you the history of it, founded in, uh, among Native Americans, and more. He would describe it to you if you were to ask him what it means. That he's, if you were to ask a Clemson fan what does it mean, and, and if I were to ask you, what does it mean that you're a Clemson fan, you would be able to tell me, oh, I follow this sport, and I like this, and here's my history, and here's why I started rooting for them. Here's why I still root for them. My favorite year was this, and this is the year they went, you would ooze out of you. Now ask what it means to be in Christ. And if you're like, I'm not sure what I would say still, Steve, that means you need to think about it and make yourself have that conversation. So I'll give you one. It means the other day when I was having this really intense conversation with someone. And I realized in the middle of this intense conversation that I was thinking things personally that I, I don't think were meant personally but I was internally struggling. You ever been there where you feel like you're getting angry, sinfully angry, and you're like, what? And so in the middle of the conversation, I did something remarkable. I stopped and I said, can I just pause this conversation for a moment and ask you if you mean this personally because that's the way I'm hearing it and receiving it. And I don't want to accuse you. I don't think that's what you mean. The person said, yeah, I don't mean that at all. I was like, okay, okay. Now some of you are sitting there thinking, man, Steve is so mature to be able to do that. No, I'm not. How was I in that moment able to be forbearing, loving, and clear in my communication? How? Jesus. Don't think better of me. Be amazed at Jesus. It's because you're in Christ. And so if someone were to ask you, have this conversation. Here's your homework. Have that conversation, maybe even this afternoon. What does it mean to you to realize you are in Christ? You know what you might come up with? I'm not sure I am. Then I call to you to repent and believe. Be freed from the punishment, the presence, and the power of sin. And if you are, it may be some humbling confessional moments. There's no greater identity question than asking, are you in Christ or not?